0: And uh, make our way to the book of Ephesians chapter number two. Ephesians chapter number two and our text for today is going to be verse 17 down through verse 22. We're going to uh, conclude this chapter as we've been uh, coming through the book of Ephesians uh, verse by verse in an expositional fashion and uh, this morning's message is titled the building of God's people. The building of God's people. Now last week we looked at the union of God's people, two people and who are actually one people in Christ. And uh, so this kind of connects and and flows from that same subject matter and uh, thought that Paul is communicating, but he expands further upon it. And I pray that as we look at this text, we'll see uh, the glorious truth of who we are in Christ uh, with our fellow brothers and sisters and what God is doing through his people. So let's look at verse 17 of Ephesians 2. See Ephesians 2 and verse 17 down through verse number 22. Paul the Apostle writing and says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens As we kind of recap a little bit as to what we looked at last week and how it flows into this week's message, who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? Well, there are many in this world who want to be known as the people of God, but not all people in this world are the people of God. As we saw plainly in our text last week, God makes clear that his people are those who are in Christ. God's people are those who are in Christ. Those who have been called and converted unto faith in Jesus are the people of God. Now, when we consider the fact that we as believers are the people of God, is there any at all ground of boasting in us? And we know the answer to that. Absolutely not. For all of salvation is indeed of grace. And as we look at that reality... That brings us to another conclusion that there is no possibility of one group of believers that are superior to other groups of believers. We have zero ground of boasting since it is all of grace, and yet there are some throughout church history, and even probably today, that see themselves as superior Christians. And this superior Christian mindset is based on external differences such as maybe how they live or their ethnic background or the nation to which they belong. This was a real issue in the early church and it continues in some fashions to be an issue in the modern church. Now when it comes down to it, is there a distinction between some believers from other believers? The answer is no. There is no distinction and Paul makes this point clear. Upon the reality of the tension that used to be between the Jew and the Gentiles. The Jew and the Gentiles. They used to be at odds with one another. But Paul makes this point plain to us. That all believers, both Jew and Gentile, they are one people under one God in Christ. You know, growing up with a sibling, my sister and I used to battle each other over about everything when we were young. And if you have siblings, you're probably in the same boat as I was. We would aggravate each other to no end, trying to get each other in trouble and thought we were better or more deserving than the other. I used to joke with her and tell her, well, you're just adopted and I'm the real child. And, and uh, so we, well, there, was, there was always a, a sibling rivalry. It's that way in any home. But as we grew up knowing we were one family, we, we come to realize we're one family from the same parents. And as one family, we're meant to encourage, enjoy, and build up each other. And we knew this all along in our hearts, but our childish understanding kept us from enjoying unity as young children. And that's typically how it goes. I'm watching Jubilee and David right now, and let me tell you, it's war all the time. Every now and then, they'll get along, but usually they're trying to outdo the other and uh, trying to show one as being guilty or one as being superior. That's the same mindset that... Uh, really we see was prevalent between the Jew and Gentile before the cross, and even sometime afterwards, we see Jews and Gentiles at odds with another. The Jews, they were God's chosen people whom God had gave his covenant promises through. Gentiles were a lesser people in the Jewish mind, so uh, there was always that contention. But here's what Paul makes plain, and we'll get to this throughout the text. We've already seen it last week, is that Christ has changed all of that distinction with his death and bloodshed. The work of Christ on the cross has unified Jew and Gentile into one body, one people of God by faith. He says in verse 13, realm of the Gentiles, those who were far off, far from God, far from Christ, far from the covenants, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the Jew and Gentile in Christ are one people that God has formed together. And Christian, this is a glorious truth that we will rejoice in for all of eternity. All of us in heaven who are His. doesn't matter where we came from, but we are all in Christ. And as we come to our text this morning, it is a continuation of that same subject matter. If you look at verse 17 through 22... Paul further explains how this union is possible and to what purpose this union is brought to pass. What is God doing in bringing in such a vast people unto himself? He is building up his own people. And so what does this union and building of God's people mean for us today as Christians and also the local church in our own generation? Notice with me a few points in our notes this morning. Notice with me number one. I want you to see God's people have been brought peace. God's people have been brought peace or given peace. And here's what we find about this peace. Christ, firstly, understand this as we look at verse 17. Christ has preached peace to the Jew and the Gentile. Christ has preached peace to the Jew and the Gentile. Now, we read in verse 14 how that Jesus himself is our peace, and that he has accomplished peace through the blood of his cross. And now Paul continues that explanation in verse 17 and says, he came, being Jesus, he came and preached peace. He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, this is basically the same distinction that Paul made earlier. Those who were far off, those who were near. Who were those who were far off? Those were the Gentiles. Who were those who were near? Those were the Jews. And what does Paul say Jesus did? He preached peace to both of them. He preached peace to both of them. Now, it's easy to see how Jesus preached peace to the Jews, right? After all, Jesus is Jewish. He was born into a Jewish home raised uh, under the Jewish commonwealth, in a Jewish town. He had Jewish disciples. He went throughout Jewish cities preaching the gospel uh, throughout Jerusalem and, and Galilee and Judea, performing miracles and doing all such things that we see. And some may wonder, how is it that Jesus preached to the Gentiles this piece? Well, if you look at the ministry account, there are a few Gentiles that he encountered, such as the uh, well, really a hybrid, the Samaritan woman. That was a mix of Jew and Gentile. They were outcasts in their era, in their age. You have someone like the Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile who came to Jesus seeking help. But you notice that even in that account that, that Jesus, his mission was focused on the Jews during his earthly ministry. In Matthew 15, 24, here's what he says to that Syrophoenician woman. He says, "'I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel.'" So so there's this centralized focus, even in the ministry of Jesus, uh, of getting this message to the Jews. It's easy to see his preaching of peace to the Jews. But that doesn't mean that the Gentiles would be untouched by him and his ministry onward. And here's what we find with this text. Jesus' preaching of peace to the Jews and Gentiles is not restricted to his physical earthly ministry. It's not restricted to that. It is further expressed and preached... Through the very work of the cross and the work of the church with the great commission. Now understand that Jesus, he never visited Ephesus in person. At least we don't have any record of that and I'm not inclined to believe that he did. But we know this, he certainly has preached to them. He certainly has preached to them. You say, how so through the Holy Spirit working through his church? You see, what does Paul say of the church? He says that the church is the body of Jesus, with Christ being the head of the body. And as the church goes forth into the world preaching the gospel, you understand that it is indeed the risen Savior preaching through them, for it is his word. Now, Paul knew this firsthand. When you come back to the Damascus Road experience and Paul is knocked off his high horse and Jesus appears to him, what does Jesus say to him? He says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. You see, Jesus says, You're persecuting me, but wait a minute. Paul was, Jesus was already ascended to heaven, right? And so Paul is persecuting the people of Christ. Jesus identifies himself with his church. He says, you're persecuting me. So understand that persecuting the church is persecution of Christ himself. And in the same manner, Christian, preaching of the gospel by the church is Christ ushering forth his message to the lost world around us. Now, Paul the apostle put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, notice this, God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, Notice what Paul is saying. We as Christians, we are ambassadors, we are representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ and that's something we ought to take with us today because we are Christians wherever we are in our days and in our life whether we're at home whether we're in the workplace whether we're out and about we are Christians and we are representatives of the high king of heaven we are representatives of the risen Lord who died and atoned for sin And he will later tell the Ephesians themselves that as they take up the armor of God, part of that armor is indeed the gospel of peace, likened to the shoes that we wear. Ephesians 6.15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So that indicates to us we're taking the gospel of peace with us. Now when Paul quotes this, He's alluding to the Old Testament reference to God's intended work through the Messiah. Now, there's various references throughout the Old Testament. That the Messiah and his work, it would not just be for the Jews, but it would be a light unto the Gentiles. A light unto the Gentiles. And he says in Isaiah 49.6, the passage that Paul is alluding to here, Peace, peace to the far and to who? And to the near." To the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will hear them, heal them. So you understand that, that Jesus has not only achieved peace on the cross, but has also announced peace to his people, both far and near. And this he has done through his coming, through his cross, and through his church. As Charles Hodge rightly comments on this, Christ announced that peace with God Had by the cross been secured for those afar off, the Gentiles, as well as for the Jews, those who were nigh. So the cross of Jesus is the preaching of peace to the Jew and the Gentile. Jesus is preaching through them. And therefore, remember this, Christians, also, that when you preach Jesus and one rejects the preaching of Jesus, it is not you they are rejecting. It is Christ himself they are rejecting. Don't take it personal. If you share the gospel and someone rejects it. It is not you they reject. It is Christ. And you're part of Christ. So in a sense there's a connection there. But at the core of this. It is Christ who they reject. So let us take this message of peace in Christ. To all people. Regardless of what their response may be. Because we know that Christ is claiming his own unto himself. So notice with me, secondly, in the realm of this peace, Christ not only preached peace to the Jew and Gentile, we find that Christ has established peace in the triune God, the Trinity. And I I love this verse, this one small verse in verse 18. Notice what he says here. He says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You understand that this is proof of the peace that has come to the Jew and the Gentile. This is evidence. This is proof. We both have access through Christ by the Spirit to the Father. Now notice that he's saying this, that both have access. Not one, just recounting the other, but both. One group does not have access while the other doesn't. Nor does one group have better access than the other. They both have equal access to God as the people of God. Now, within our home, there is not one child that we love more than another, nor is there one child that we treat more favorably than another. Though our children have differing qualities and appearances and different offenses, many that we cannot count, each of them... Is our own child. Each of them have the same privilege and connection to us. As their parents. The same love. The same access unto us. And the point Paul brings out. Is that the Jew and Gentile in Christ. They have the same God. God. They have the same Father, they have the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same access unto the Father by them. So this truth is true for all of us. Both have access unto the Father. You know what that means? That means that both were in need of that access to the Father. Both were in need of it. The Jews did not automatically possess access because they were Jewish. You see, even in the old covenant system, access to God's presence, which was restricted and pictured by uh, the limited access to the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could enter in. There was a restriction there in the tabernacle and in the temple. And Paul mentions here that both have access to the father through Christ by the spirit because both needed this. Now, truly, this one statement is, is wonderful for us to behold. In this one sentence, we see the work of the Trinity, the triune God. Now, we understand that God is a Trinity, right? God is three distinct persons, yet one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all three persons of the Trinity work together in your salvation. Work together in your Christian life. Work together in our own intercession to the Father. And here's what we find with this. Notice with me plainly. The work of the triune God. Firstly, this access is unto God the Father. It is unto God the Father. Now, it is the Father who represents the Trinity that we are reconciled unto. Christ did his work on the cross to do what? To bring us to God, right? 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So, So Christ has reconciled us to the Father. We were restricted from the Father because of our sin, but now we have been brought near to the Father in Christ. That brings us to the second person of the Trinity here. Notice that Paul says it's through him. Who is the him he's referencing? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Through Him being Christ, we have access to the Father. It is only through Christ's blood atonement for us and His intercession for us that we can approach the Father. You understand, every time that we bow in prayer and we seek to approach God the Father, the only reason you can have any confidence that you are actually approaching the Father is because of Jesus. You have no access to God outside of Jesus. None whatsoever. And now there's a lot of people in the world that think that they can just approach God any but they have no clue about Christ and his importance, and, 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 and they don't realize that there is no access to the Holy One except through the blood atonement of Jesus because Jesus is the one who intercedes for us to the Father Now, now Paul put it this way in, in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, we touched on this in Sunday school for a moment, but what is a mediator? Well, the word refers to one who mediates between two parties. To remove a disagreement or remove or reach a common goal. So, in other words, what we find is that the two parties, man and God the Father, we were at a serious disagreement. (laughs) God's holy, we're not. We loved sin, God hates sin. Those two don't mesh. And what Christ has done as the mediator, he's the bridge. He's the bridge that changes our hearts. And grants us access to the Father whereby God honors His people through the Son. Because His Son, the perfect Holy One in flesh, has died to atone and cover those sins. So standing between God the Father and us is the person and work of Christ. And without Christ in the middle reconciling us with God we have no access to Him whatsoever. And friend, this truly is the proof of peace being brought to every person in Christ. Jew and Gentile have this same standing to the Father. But we see the third person of the Trinity at work here in this peace that we have with the Triune God. And that is the Holy Spirit. Notice that Paul says in one spirit we have access to the Father. Who is this spirit? He is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. He is God just as much as the Father and the Son are. Just as much. They are equal in their deity. And here's the glorious truth. The Holy Spirit indwells the people of God. Enabling them access to the Father. Guiding us unto the throne of grace. Now listen to what Romans 8 says. Romans 8 verse 26 and 27 This is such a comforting passage to me. And I pray it is to you. Paul says to these believers, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Any of us have weakness? We go through times of weakness. And who is it that helps us in this weakness? It's the Spirit of God. But notice how he helps us. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings Too deep for words. Have you ever been in such weakness that you don't even know what to say? Or how to even pray? The Spirit knows. And he intercedes with groanings and words. that, Groanings too deep for words. Notice, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You understand, there's times we don't even know how to pray right. And it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to pray according to the will of God in our weakness, in our struggles. He guides us and enables us to approach the Father even when we have no right words to do so. And as you look at the work of the Trinity, it is glorious to behold. For His work in us has gone from eternity past to eternity future. All that we are and all that we do, we owe to the work of the triune God. Charles Hodge rightly says again, Christ by his cross has reconciled them, both Jews and Gentiles, unto God. The distinction between the two classes is abolished, united in one body, filled and guided by one spirit. They draw near to God as his common children. And friend, this is what peace has brought. This is the peace that we have. That Christ, He has achieved peace at the cross. He has announced peace through the message of the gospel. And He has applied peace to all of His people. Now how else does this further affect us in the building of God's people? Notice with me number two. God's people have the same position. God's people have the same position. Now, and I want to break this down for you here and, and show you two aspects within two verses. I want you to see, firstly, the blessing of their position. The blessing of the position of God. Now, since Jew and Gentile are in Christ by faith, this places them in the same exact position before God. And to convey this truth, Paul is going to use three word pictures. Three illustrations to show the position of every person in Christ. These pictures are going to include a citizen of a nation or kingdom. A member of a family. And a stone in a temple. Now notice verse 19. He says regarding the Gentiles, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This this again references their past state we looked at last week. They were strangers and aliens meaning they were foreigners to the people of God they were estranged from all the covenant blessings given to them Paul employs a term here that was common in political life in ancient cities like Ephesus strangers were complete foreigners with no rights or privileges aliens were not little green men but <laughs> means they weren't weren't they were non-citizens who dwelt in the city and were were accorded customary privileges as neighbors. Only true citizens had full protections and rights in the city. And so what does Paul say of them now? Notice the contrast. You're no longer those strangers, no longer those aliens, but he says you are now fellow citizens with the saints. You're now included. You now have citizenship among the saints. Now, what is this citizenship? A citizen is a legally recognized subject or national of a state or commonwealth. Now, that definition is in the terms of just our own common definition, political word. But Paul's speaking spiritually here. What are the Jews and Gentiles in Christ citizens of spiritually? They are citizens with the saints. Who are the saints? The saints are the people of God, aren't they? The saints are the people of God. You become a saint when you become in Christ. And the saints are those who are holy and sacred. They are set apart unto God. They are the people of God. And as the people of God, all of the saints are citizens of the kingdom of God. You understand? That is what we've been brought into. We are citizens of God's kingdom, both in the heavenly realm and the earthly. Now listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. It's in heaven. And from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand, our citizenship, first and foremost, is belonging to heaven. Belonging to the people of God, the kingdom of God. Our names are penned in the book of life. You're on the eternal Role of heaven. You belong there. And as people in this world, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. We're not of this world. We are heavenly people. Now, we presently are citizens of the United States of America, right? If I were to travel to another country, I do not have all the rights and privileges that belong to the citizens of that country. I am a foreigner. If you've ever been to another country, you feel like a foreigner. Both times that I was in Israel, never felt like I belonged there. People are different. Different customs, different languages, different practices, different laws, and things that you, 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 you see around you in the culture. But man, it feels good to finally get back home and step feet on American soil and go get an American hamburger. You know that kosher burgers don't have cheese you got to have cheese on your burger. So coming coming back to to, to where I belong, it was quite a relief. The same is true in the Christian. We live in this world, but we're not of this world. Things around us in this world are strange to us because we're a holy people. We're a called out people. We've been called out of the realm of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Now notice with me this point. I want to emphasize this through Hebrews 12 for a moment. Hebrews 12 and verse 22 through verse 24. Notice this with me. Hebrews 12, verse 22 through 24. Notice what the author shows these Hebrew believers about their citizenship and where they've come to. Hebrews 12, verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, he's not talking about physical Jerusalem and physical Mount Zion. He's talking about the spiritual. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Look at that heavenly description we have. Of where we've been brought into. No longer is the kingdom of God identified with one particular people or place. As it was under the old covenant. His kingdom is found wherever Christians are and continues to increase as more sinners are brought unto Christ. The kingdom of God is ever expanding. And our citizenship is sealed in that kingdom. And so Hebrews 12 will continue to say this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You understand we may physically belong to the United States of America or a different country but you understand every nation in this world is subject to being shaken of falling every nation is subject to falling but not the kingdom of God the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom, as Daniel 4.3 tells us. Well, So that's the first word picture we find. But Paul uses another word picture to describe our position in Christ. You look at verse 19 again, and notice what he says. He says, "You're your fellow citizen with the saints, our citizenship as the people of God in his kingdom. But notice also that we are members of the household of God. You understand, this truth reveals an even deeper understanding of our union with God and other believers. here's what this means. All Christians, Jew and Gentile, whoever is in faith, are one big family with God as their father. This applies to everyone who is born again. The Apostle John wrote in John 1, 12-13, but to all who did receive him, that's Christ, who believed in his name, he had gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, so you see that the, the, the flow here is that we who received Christ are made children of God. And the reason that we received Him and are made children is because we were born again. Born again. That new birth didn't come by my power or my will. It came entirely of God's. And just as it takes birth or adoption to become part of a family, guess what, Christian? You've experienced both. You have been born again and you have been adopted into the family of God. And this family connection... Reveals a position that is so close-knit to God and His people. Understand, membership in a family is much more intimate than a citizenship of a nation. Now, both I and my neighbors, where I live, are citizens of the same nation, I suppose. I ain't seen their birth certificate or anything, but I'm assuming that. We, as citizens of this nation have that in common, that we as citizens should do good for the good of our nation. We should want good for our nation, that it be a godly nation, and do that which is right and just. But being part of a home, my home is different. To come into my home and to sit at my table and to sleep under the same roof and enjoy all of what it means to be part of the Allen family is entirely different than just being my neighbor citizen of the same nation. And how wonderful this is, both for our relationship to God and to each other. Can you fathom the fact that God Almighty is your father? Your father, Christian, and you're his child. Can you fathom the fact that those in Christ in this room, they are, they're not just citizens of the kingdom of God, although we are, we're all working for the kingdom of God. But those who are in Christ in this room, they are your brothers and sisters they're your family. They're not just nobodies. They are your family friend. Now, like siblings, you may not get along with every brother and sister in Christ. That's just the reality of it, right? We ought to try to. And even if you don't fully get along with them or agree with them on everything, you ought to love them as, their, as a sibling. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 Listen to this. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. He says, behold what love this is that we're the children of God. So Christian, you ought to be close to God as a child is to their father. Christian, you ought to love and embrace your fellow believers as you would a sibling. And what a warm and close fellowship the people of God had together. And understand that this is true of all believers. That that, that we're we're, we're related through Christ to every believer all over the world. But this ought to be more evident in the local church. Now there's believers across this world. I have brothers and sisters in Christ that I've never met. And I'll probably never meet until I get to eternity. Millions of them. But those that are among us here and now that we know... We must love each other as Christian family. As Christian family, regardless of any kind of ethnic or cultural difference. For there is none in Christ. And this is the Paul point Paul's making. Every Christian, Jew, or Gentile is a brother and sister in Christ. And what better evidence of the gospel of peace than for Christians of all diverse nationalities to be one and love each other in Christ? What better thing is there than that? You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, this love truly makes a difference. It promotes unity in the church and also testifies to the world around us that Christ is in us. And so as God's people, we have the same position as a citizen of the kingdom but also as a member of God's family. But notice with me, letter B here, we see the foundation of this position. The foundation. What, 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 really, what ground do we have to claim such a position? Now, it's glorious to know that's our position, but why is it that we have this position? What assures us of this position? The answer to this is somewhat plain, but Paul reveals it to us. Our assurance is in the word of God and the work of Christ. Now, Paul's actually going to begin here to use another word picture, another metaphor, to give us another uh, position that we hold as Christians. And this third word picture is that of believers being built as a temple or building upon a certain foundation. Now, notice in verse 20, notice what he says. He says of these Christians that they are built on the foundation of the apostles and Prophets. Now, in what way does Paul mean that the apostles and prophets are the foundation? Isn't Christ the foundation? Yes. Here's what we learn. Both the apostles and prophets were Christian teachers and ministers of the word of God under the new covenant after the death of Christ. Not all prophets were apostles, but many apostles were prophets. But both were used by God in the early church to lay the foundation of truth for Christians. Christ physically was already gone to heaven. So he's entrusted this teaching and establishing to his, to his people. Paul later is going to reference this. In Ephesians 3, 5, he references apostles and prophets. In Ephesians 4, 11, he mentions the, uh, the building of the church based on the apostles and the prophets. And so as ministers of the gospel and of God's divine truth, they are considered as laying the foundation in the early church, establishing the church in truth. We read of the early church in Acts 2.42. We see a reference to this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and of prayer. So you see the role that they're playing. But their role in laying a solid foundation of truth for the early church does not Eliminate the Lord Jesus as being the true foundation of the church. Now Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 9-11. through He said, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. There's that same picture, right? According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you see, Paul says, I'm laying the foundation, but the foundation is Jesus. A dual nature there in which Paul would establish a church. And this shows us the immediate connection to what Paul says next. Notice what he says. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But notice this last statement. This is a key. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. You say, well, what's that mean? What's the cornerstone? The cornerstone was the major structural part of ancient buildings. You couldn't have a proper building without it. It had to be strong enough to support what was built on it. It had to be precisely laid because every other part of the structure was oriented to the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the support, the orienter, the unifier of the entire building. And Paul says this is what Jesus is. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's kingdom. He is the cornerstone of God's family. He is the cornerstone of God's building. He is the true foundation on which all of it is built. Christ alone, friend, holds everything together. If the church and the kingdom and all that we look at here, if it was laid on the foundation of men with men as the foundation, it would crumble, crumble, crumble. That Christ is the cornerstone is clear from Scripture. It was prophesied that he would be this. Isaiah 26, 28 and verse 16 says, Isaiah writes, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, Precious cornerstone. A sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You see this cornerstone is immovable. It is solid. This cornerstone was rejected. By unbelieving Jews. But those who believe are placed on this immovable foundation. That cannot be shaken. We see this as Peter preaches. To the Jews in Acts 4, 11 and 12. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men on which we must be saved. Friend, you understand that your salvation all rests upon union with Christ. If you do not have Christ as your eternal salvation, he's not a foundation to you. You have no foundation other than Jesus. It must be in him alone. And so what a joy it is to know that all of God's people have the same position in God's kingdom and family, resting on a sure foundation. Now this leads us to the third and final thing here, and I'll be brief. I want you to see that God's people are also, they are the place of his presence. God's people are the place of his presence. We see that we've been likened to citizenship and family membership. And we're being built into something. This is the foundation being built into something. And here's what we find is that God has built his people into his temple. He has made his people, his temple, his dwelling place. Notice what he says in verse 21. As he continues this sentence, he says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now this is where Paul expresses further the word picture of the people of God as the temple of God. We're familiar with the concept of the temple, right, in ancient Judaism? The tabernacle, then the temple, was the place where God proclaimed that he would meet with his people, he would dwell among his people. When God gives instructions for the tabernacle, back in Exodus 25, 8, he said, let them make me a sanctuary, why? That I may dwell in their midst, dwell among them, right? And so God would dwell among his people by means of this physical temple, And the Jews were very familiar with this. For nearly a thousand years, the temple was the focal point of Israel. From Solomon, then that one was destroyed, then to Zerubbabel, the rebuilt one, and then the renovated one by Herod. The temple was the centerpiece of their religion. And even now, what is it that the Jews long to do? They long to rebuild a physical temple in Jerusalem. But what has Paul declared here? What does the New Testament teach concerning the temple of God? Paul says that God's people are his temple. So, so you understand with the New Covenant, God used to dwell among the people, but now God dwells in the people. He dwells in the people by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, now we see this in three distinct ways. That we get glean application from this, but first understand this. The individual believer is the temple of the Lord. This is so key for us. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have of God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Christian, take that to heart in the practical life in which you live. Your body is the temple of God. Everywhere you go, God goes with you. Don't ever think that you escape his presence. That you somehow are getting away with something. If Christ is in you, he's in you all the time. Your body is the temple. Secondly, we see the local church is the temple of the Lord as believers assemble. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? He's speaking to the church as a whole. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God takes the purity of his church seriously. We're the temple of the living God. He takes his local church with great seriousness. And then thirdly, we find in our own text, the whole of believers, whatever they are in this world... Make up the temple of the living God. Now this certainly points to a universal and future sense. In which all believers will be gathered together at at a certain point. But this is what Paul is referencing as he's speaking in the broad sense. Of all of God's people of Jew and Gentile. Paul speaks of his temple as the whole structure being joined together as one temple. The whole structure. Fitted together with Christ as the cornerstone. And how does Paul describe this temple? Notice what he says in the last part of this verse. He says that it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple of God is holy. How holy was the physical temple in the Old Testament? You didn't enter in without the blood. And only priests could enter in. But now in the New Covenant, what do we find? We are believer priests. And we are a temple of God Himself. We are made holy by Him. And this challenges us, not only to understand our holy state by our position, but that as part of God's people, we should also be holy in our practices. How we live our life. We need to remember our holy nature as His temple. But notice letter B. And lastly, we see that God's Has built his people as his temple. But notice that God continues building his people as his temple. He's he's still doing it. He's still doing it. Notice verse 21. In him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. We saw in verse 21. That it grows. It's growing. God's people grow into this holy temple. This is an ongoing process by which the Lord is building His temple. And we notice now in this verse, we're being built together. This manifests, friend, that God's building of His temple of Jew and Gentile continues. And how does it continue? continues because God's not through bringing all of His elect to Himself. All of the stones that make up His temple wherever they are throughout the entirety of the world. You see, God's temple is comprised of living stones, not dead stones. It's no longer physical. It is spiritual. It is alive. It is organic. And therefore, as God's temple, we grow and live unto Him, offering Him spiritual sacrifices of worship and obedience. Now, notice one final text as we close. In 1 Peter 2, this is a direct tie where Peter uses the exact same imagery for the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, and look with me at verse 4 through 9 just briefly. We're almost done. Notice that what he says here to these believers. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, talking about Christ, You yourselves, the Christians, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that was the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter goes into a little more depth than Paul does, but man, that's a rich truth for us. We're living stones. What a picture this is of the Christian living stones being made a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices this is the building of God's people together Jew and Gentile into one glorious temple and what does this mean in regard for us in our Christian life and our own church here's what we need to realize every Christian counts every Christian counts the church needs every believer's unique makeup that God has made them into Their own talents and time and treasure. God has called all of us uniquely and uses us as he pleases. And all believers need to be connected and active in worship and serving the Lord. In and through the local church. So the building of God's people, it is a marvelous truth. God has united two people groups into one through Christ. Making them his kingdom citizens. Making them members of his family. Making them stones in his temple. And let us today who know Christ embrace these truths and live them out. And friend today if you do not know Christ. Understand that you do not have a foundation to sit upon. Christ is the cornerstone. And if you do not believe in him. If you do not believe in him. You have no foundation for your life and eternity. Christ is salvation alone. And I would urge you today, if you don't know Christ and you see that you are sinful and in need of this salvation, look to Him in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song. Father, we bow before you and we praise you, Lord, for the great truths that your word has revealed to us this morning. Father it's hard for us even to fathom the fact that you have made us into this people that we are yours that we are members of your family we're your children we're your brothers we are brothers and sisters with each other that we're citizens in your kingdom that never will be shaken and will always remain and continue to expand we're stones in your temple that you dwell in holy temple. Father, help us as Christians to rejoice and remember who we are in Christ, that all of our foundation rests on Jesus alone. And if there's someone here today that's unsure of their salvation, I pray your Holy Spirit draw and convict and bring them to faith alone in Christ alone by your marvelous grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name.